0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Ed Meese, and I have the privilege of moderating this panel this afternoon. And on behalf of my colleagues here, I welcome all of you to uh, the last panel of this conference. Uh, as you know, the theme that has gone throughout uh, the last uh, several days has been limited government. And so we've had uh, showcase panels on uh, limited government and spreading democracy. We've had a panel talking about the economic aspects of things like taxes and regulation. Uh, We've had the question raised, are constitutional measures necessary, constitutional amendments, changes, in order to achieve limited government? Uh, And this one is uh, an interesting one, I think, because it talks less about governmental things, per se, as the relationship between government and the everyday lives of people. Under the topic, the role of government, in defining our culture. The initial question, of course, is uh, what should that role be? And we can think about it in terms of what did the founders have in mind and what is that role today, and is there a difference, uh, a a dichotomy between the concept originally and how it's worked out uh, a little over 200 years later. There's the question of what are the other institutions of society that are competing, perhaps, with government In defining our culture? And to what extent should more attention be given to those other institutions uh, than to the role of government itself uh, when limited government is one of our objectives? What principles do we have to determine when government should intervene in determining culture? And then, of course, uh, can you ever have a government role in culture which is outcome neutral? And finally, uh, is there some consensus among the people generally as to what that role of government is in defining the culture, or is this a matter of continual tension, uh, something that the founders uh, had in mind as far as government itself as being in somewhat of a state of tension where an ambition would counter ambition uh, and is there but is there a consensus today uh, as to uh, the role of, of government in defining culture uh, to answer this question in Federalist Society tradition, we have a number of people here uh, gathered who do not always agree with each other. And so, uh, as a result, I think we will have a a lively discussion. Uh, I will introduce each uh, person uh, briefly before they speak in their initial remarks of five to seven minutes. Uh, Then we will have the panel uh, talk among themselves in response to some questions I will ask, and then we will open to the public. I ask when we do open it to all of you, uh, if you'll be sure and come to the microphone, and you can line up behind the microphone uh, here uh, so that we can take the questions in order as quickly as possible. I'm not going to introduce uh, the speakers uh, with with a, a, a large or lengthy introduction because, uh, first of all, they are all so distinguished that they have such lengthy backgrounds and such distinguished uh, curriculum vitae that it would take up most of their time if I were to introduce them so I'll make the introductions uh, very brief but you will understand in the the introductions in full their biography is available in your programs to kick off this uh, session uh, we are pleased to have Walter Dellinger well known to all of you from many uh, standpoints uh, a solicitor general of the United States and who has rendered great public service in various capacities a private practitioner of the law and a law professor. And so please join me in welcoming Walter Dellinger as our first speaker. In January of
1: 1998, the Ninth Circuit decided Finley versus the National Endowment for the Arts. I was acting Solicitor General at the time and the issue came quickly to my desk with a visit from the director of the National Endowment for the Arts, the excellent um, actress Jane Alexander. The case that involved the constitutionality of the, I believe it was the Helms Amendment, that required that the National Endowment take decency into account in choosing who should be awarded artistic grants. And once the decency criteria had been invoked, Karen Finley was one of those who did not get or did not get renewed her expected grant. The Ninth Circuit decision ruling against the National Endowment for the Arts was, as you might imagine, welcomed with great enthusiasm by the National Endowment of the Arts. They did not care for the Helms Amendment and was happy uh, and uh, would would be happy so that when the director of the National Endowment came to me, she said, happily, we have this wonderful loss in the Ninth Circuit and as your client, uh, we'll be happy for this to end matter to end there and there'll be no need to seek review in the Supreme Court. And my response was that she and I were both employees or officers of the United States, but my client was the United States, that Congress spoke to the United States, and that we had an obligation to defend Acts of Congress if there were defensible grounds for doing so. And there were defensible grounds. Indeed, there were grounds that were almost certain to prevail, and indeed correctly so, in my view. And to the question that well, isn't this government censoring cultural values in a way that offends the First Amendment by requiring decency to which my response was it may well be but the problem with that is that if the Helms Amendment requiring taking decency into account is an unconstitutional imposition of government values then so is the entire National Endowment for the Arts that what you do all day long every day is censor, and that uh, if government cannot take values into account in making awards, then I think we've got a much bigger problem for the endowment than the Helms Amendment. And But what I think we cannot do is to say that because we prefer Karen Finley's art to Norman Rockwell's art, that Congress can't have the reverse presumption and say we like Norman Rockwell better than Karen Finley. Now, I, I raise this because It did bring in sharp focus, the fact that all of us want government to impose cultural values as long as they're our values. And in fact, one of the moves we all are tempted to make is to define our cultural values as something other than that, which is what immediately transpires in this kind of discussion, where I think the director of the National Endowment of the Arts, like most people in the community, would say, no, that's a big mistake. The Helms Amendment imposes cultural values imposed by the government. Our people judge on artistic merit. <laughs> and that is a different category. To which my response was well look, I may agree with your notion of artistic merit and the Karen Finley's act, she smears her body with chocolate and, and, and gives a pay on to feminism but I cannot believe that if you had some equally effective actor who smeared his or her body with chocolate and made an impassioned cry to index capital gains for inflation, that they would have gotten the award. <laughs> it can't be. You're not, you don't make these awards on neatness, you know, or, <laughs> of the application. So that... I came away from that experience as well as debating what the government's position should be when I headed OLC in the Rosenberg versus University of Virginia case with the thought that I actually find it quite troublesome that the government I do actually find it problematic that government funds the arts at all that it could well be that the Helms Amendment is problematic and so is the funding and I find myself dismaying my friends who like I enjoy it by wondering about National Public Radio and National Public Television precisely because I don't see how we get out of this box. But the one thing I knew is we couldn't say it's okay to prefer Karen Finley to Norman Rockwell but not vice versa. However artistically merited that might be. So we all I think are drawn by this, by this tension. I come at it I think more from a Cato Institute perspective than, than anything else. Uh, Roger would say that I'm a I'm a soft Catoan, <laughs> a squishy, a squishy Catoan that that still thinks Lochner was wrongly decided in spite of his pounding on me. But I do come to this, and want to and want to raise it in one other context, which I think is quite salient. And that is the role of government in shaping religious values and opinions of the of the of the population. And on this, I believe that since we don't really know what Uh, the new Chief Justice and Justice Alito's views will be, I do believe that eight of the nine justices on the previous court got this wrong on one principle or the other. That there are a group of justices who are comfortable with having the government impose its religious values directly by having government views of religion, government endorsement, and government promotion of religion. And then there are four other justices uh, Stevens uh, Stevens, Ginsburg Suter and, and uh, Offenbrier who would have the government take cognizance of religion in a negative way in denying the use of funding by religious groups or by religious individuals when the government funding is itself neutral that is anybody may use an interpreter to Uh, for the deaf to go to school anybody may use the school premises one first come first serve at the time anyone may have a student club all of these are areas where there is government funding in the premises and those who would exclude uh, including vouchers those who would exclude religious groups from being able to participate I think also miss the notion that what ought to be controlling is the critical fact of intervening private choice There ought to be private choice about religion. And I believe that only Justice O'Connor, who has been underappreciated in this area, got it consistently right. And by the magic of 5-4, the Court, I think, got virtually every religion decision right for almost the entire time of the Rehnquist Court by her voting consistently on a very simple principle. Government religion, bad. Private religion, good. And she just consistently applied that one minute. Okay, she consistently applied that, but her view of private religion was robust private choice. That is to say, where government provided resources for citizens to decide how to use those resources, you were free to make a religious, an intervening private religious choice. So that was robust private choice, with government itself having no role. And I think that only she got it right in terms of shaping the religious culture. Thank you.
0: Our next speaker is uh, Dr. Charles Murray. Uh, he is the W.H. Brady Scholar of the American Enterprise Institute. He has written a number of books, uh, is a well-known uh, social scientist, and we're pleased to have him as our next speaker. Charles.
2: Okay, what is the role of government in defining the culture? In principle, none; in practice, disastrous. Um, <laughs> look, the, the the culture is the constitutional system that was set up. I mean, that that was the culture which, in his first inaugural address, um, uh, Jefferson defined as uh, uh, protecting people from injuring each other and otherwise leaving them alone, and and it's it's that kind of framework of liberty that uh, creates our culture in this country in particular. And, and I want to make two points about how, in practice, I think we have gotten it wrong. The first has to do with the attempts to prohibit or control individual behaviors, whether you're talking about uh, drinking, as in the case of prohibition, or whether it's drug use, or whether it's censorship of uh, the kind that uh, Walter was talking about. In all of this, I think there is a, a couple of problems that probably are not paid enough attention to. and. It was called by an email correspondent of mine, Law Inflation, which in effect has the same effect on law and our attitude toward the law that inflation has on money. And the point is this, that if you have, if you have a few simple laws against things that people all agree are bad, rape, robbery, murder, uh, things like that, fraud, you have no problem, and you can establish a cultural capital which says you shall obey the law because the rule of law is so important that you will not try to judge each law de novo. When the government gets involved in cultural issues in which large numbers of people in the population do not think they're doing anything wrong, A, you label them criminals and B, They say to themselves, I am doing this thing which the government says is illegal, I'm not doing anything wrong, and you do start to pick and choose which laws you are going to obey. Uh, Tonight I am going to go home and first I will probably pour myself a large martini, which is legal, but if I were to light a joint, I could get put in jail. For long periods of time. We have hundreds of thousands of people in jail right now for doing things like that, not because they've hit somebody while they were smoking dope, not, wh- not because they have uh, abused their children, not because they've uh, robbed anybody, but because they engaged in that act, which, as far as I'm concerned, is basically like drinking a martini. And then I'm going to log on to fulltiltpoker.com and I'm going to play some poker, uh, and I will be a criminal because uh, the government has said i can't do that either well you have millions of people who disagree and all of us to one, as each one of these new attempts of the government to try to push and poke personal behaviors that define our culture every time that happens and you have a lot of people who say this is nonsense and go ahead and break the law you are weakening the cultural capital which is the most precious legacy we have uh... which is respect for the rule of law that's, 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 right. that's,
1: good. that's very good.
2: Second point has to do with attempts to positively affect the culture, so that you encourage uh, stable families, uh, you encourage religion, and the rest of it. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say that I have written, uh, over the last 20 years, almost everything I have written has started from the importance of the married two-parent family uh, as, as the generator of a civil society. So I am very, very uh, one-sided in my view of the importance of the family. I would also suggest to you the government no more knows how to encourage certain values regarding the family or religion or other institutions that I hold dear than the the left uh, had when it was trying to social engineer its values in the 1960s. So anytime you have an administration, whether it's conservative or liberal, that says well we will use the instruments of government to push and pull and tweak and so forth, they always get it wrong. And, and they get it wrong for a couple of reasons. Those of you who are familiar with public choice theory know that however good the idea is originally, by the time it uh, is crafted into legislation, public choice dynamics have, have, have uh, contaminated it beyond recognition. You also know all the practical political problems that go on. I would add simply one more, and that is incompetence. That is inherent in this kind of effort. Uh, the smartest social scientists in the world cannot tell you what's going to happen if, for example, you have a major new tax deduction for children, just to pick one that's kind of a conservative attempt to affect the culture. We don't know how that's going to play out. But I will tell you this, that if you go to countries which, let's say, have tried to encourage the family by having very generous child allowances, generous maternity leave, daycare centers, I'll tell you what you're going to find. You're going to find countries with plunging fertility rates, plunging marital rates, soaring illegitimacy ratios. That's the way it has worked out in these countries, which openly label their their policies as child-centered. Similarly, if you go to uh, Sweden, rural Sweden, uh, as I did a few years ago and drive through the country, you will see in town after town absolutely beautiful churches, freshly painted, meticulously maintained grounds, subsidized by the government, and they're empty. Uh, empty on Sundays as well, as well as every other time. When government gets involved in the crucial institutions that define the culture in which we live family and community and religion it inherently, ineluctably, inevitably enfeebles them. Thanks.
3: <laughs> well.
1: Oh, that was good. That was
0: great. My little high Our next speaker is Anthony Romero. Uh, he has uh, been involved in public interest law for long for most of his professional career. He currently serves as the Executive Director of the American Civil Liberties Union. We're pleased to have him with us today. Please welcome Anthony Romero.
4: Now, first I want to give you a point of personal privilege that I whenever I get the request from the Federalist Society, I always tell my assistant to put it to the very top of my list of, uh, of speaking engagements. Uh, and even when I was flying down here from New York on a beautiful Saturday afternoon, I kept asking myself, why again did I accept the, this speech? <laughs> and I will tell you quite candidly, it is because when I put together our ACLU membership convention and we reach out to conservatives or individuals who disagree with the ACLU, I very much appreciate when we have individuals like Ken Starr, who came to our membership conference a year ago, Wayne LaPierre, who was there two years ago, Bob Barr, who's spoken there several times, uh, Bob Muller even had the courage of his convictions to come and walk into our Coliseum and he walked out still the, the live Christian that he was. Um, so I, I, I just hope to walk out with, uh, with at least my life uh, out of this Coliseum. Uh, let me just say, I also appreciate it because it gives me an opportunity to hear from individuals that I normally don't get a chance to hear from, only read uh, their pieces. and I, For instance, much of what uh, Dr. Murray has just said are issues with which I completely agree. Uh, and it would sometimes surprise you or even my members or even myself uh, at how much there is a consonance of some of these issues and how, uh, how in fact, there is a common bond with, between those of us who care about the rule of law and American values. I start with a premise of uh, perhaps a bit differently than the rest of the speakers here. I'm, my day-to-day work is to apply the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, to make it come live for people, to, to help people who struggle for their rights to live with dignity and equality, to make that not just a paper aspiration, but to make it a reality in their lives. That's what I do. It's the alchemy of taking a great founding principles and making it real for people's lives. And I think that one of the things that liberals or progressives, if they call themselves that, have done poorly is that they have run away from those core American values. Uh, They've been reluctant to engage in a discussion of what it means to be an American. And I remember when I took over the ACLU right after 9-11, I was there on the job a week before the 9-11 attacks, that I was very clear to wrap our organization, the American flag, to be unapologetic about being patriotic, being what it means to define us as a people. And then when we were saluting the flag or saying the national anthem, what is it that makes us feel proud as Americans? And what is it those core American values? Innocent to proven guilty. The right to due process of law. That we're all equal under the law. That you have questions around autonomy and dignity to be who you are and say what you think and live and love the way you want. That those are core American values that define us as a people. And that in a country with no unifying language, no unifying culture, no unifying religion, what brings us together is our adherence to these core values, our adherence to this rule of law. And so when I look at the last four or so years, five years, I see a very significant betrayal of some of these most basic of values. And if I were a member of the Federalist Society, which I've yet not joined, although I think I I could, especially with Attorney General Mises, one of the distinguished leaders of it, I think that these would be very tough times to be a conservative and a patriot, uh, to be at the Federalist Society. I will say, quite candidly, I think the Bush administration is engaged in a wholesale, hypocritical betrayal of what the values that that you and they say they espouse. Think of the whole question around torture and abuse. Think about how some of our highest levels of our government have authored documents that allow now the redefinition and the backing away of long-held traditions around the protection of human rights and civility. Think about the Office of Legal Counsel memos. You will have one of your speakers this afternoon who is one of the authors of those memos. You have the memos from the Attorney General, Mr. Gonzalez, who called the Geneva Conventions quaint and obsolete. You had this president sign into law the Military Commissions Act, which backed away from one of the great traditions of the writ of habeas corpus, shutting the courthouse doors to individuals who are basically entitled to the rights as as any person, the rights of, of access to the court system. Now that culture that's created by those actions is a culture of impunity. And so we have to be very clear that that is exactly what we're creating when we allow or encourage or look, look aside when we take those actions. Look at the culture that's created around the National Security Agency wire, wiretapping program. Uh, Mr. Cheney ridiculed my organization just the other day at your convention, saying that perhaps we were not going to suffer the great irreparable damage that the court uh, held in Michigan. And with all due respect i take great issue. The great harm is the fact that this president decided that he did not need to adhere to the law enacted by Congress, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978. This president believed he need not go to any judge to authorize his wiretapping program that could reach Americans in the U.S. That, my friends, leads to a culture of a president above the law. That affects all of us as Americans, and if that president really believed that he needed those powers, he ought to have engaged Congress in that discussion, or he ought to have gone to one of the foreign intelligence surveillance court judges and asked for that permission. But to step outside of that context, I believe, just undercuts what are core American values of everyone being applied and and directed by the law. The third example must be hard to believe in limited government and see changes in, in the political landscape. This uh, abortion ban that was put on the ballot initiative in South Dakota, which lost in a predominantly red state, uh, with many individuals, including Jerry Falwell, pouring millions of dollars into the campaign in South Dakota, a ban that would not have allowed abortions even in the context of rape or incest. Now, it would be very hard to be someone believing in limited government and believing that that was good foreign policy. And then take finally, before I close, the example of marriage, gay marriage, as some of you call it. Uh, The idea that government need not legislate or create this culture of rights, these special rights for certain groups. Well, I will tell you, while Dr. Murray goes back to his home and pours his martini, I will go back to my home and to the arms of my partner, my husband of 10 years, in a committed, solid, loving relationship. When his father came to New York from Miami, dying of liver cancer, he was on our sofa. I rushed him to the hospital. I wiped his brow. I grieved when my father-in-law died. When anything that hits our families, we are married. We engage it as two co-equal, loving, committed partners. And yet, before the law, we are treated as strangers. We do not have the rights that those of you who are married have. We do not have the benefits, material benefits, that those of you who are married have. And regardless of whether you grant us those rights or not, we will remain married and will remain fighting for those basic rights. Now, the decision for those of you who believe in limited government is that whether or not you choose to be on the side of granting people equality and dignity and freedom under the law or whether you will stand on the side of being those who will deny people the protections, the rights that will ensure these strong families that we all deserve and wish to have. The choice is really yours. I'm confident that history is on our side and generations from now when my grandkids talk about how Grandfather Manuel and Grandfather Anthony were not married, and they asked their counterparts in school, well, what did your grandparents think of this issue? I hope you make them feel proud. Thank you very, very much.
0: Thank you. Phyllis Lafley has a long... Career and a very distinguished career in public policy issues. Uh, She's a a lawyer. She's the president and founder of Eagle Forum, and she's been active in a number of constitutional matters. Phyllis, it's a pleasure to have you with us.
5: Thank you, gentlemen and friends. Let's shift gears here for a few moments. Government is the most powerful influence on our culture today because government spends about $2.5 trillion a year and every dollar carries the power to affect our culture and behavior through laws, regulations, grants, entitlements, and tax credits. And more influential than all the laws and judicial decisions and even the media in directing our culture is the arm of government known as the public schools. The public schools are guiding the morals, attitudes, knowledge, and decision-making of 89% of American children. The public schools are financed by $500 billion a year of our money forcibly taken from us in taxes, federal and state and local, uh, which the public school establishment spends under a thin veneer of accountability to school board members elected in government-run elections. Prior to the 1960s, the public schools, using a McGuffey-Reader-style curriculum, were the mechanism through which American kids learned not only the basics, but also values such as honesty, patriotism, and respect for elders. And immigrant kids assimilated by learning our language, our laws, and culture. For example, the American Citizen's Handbook published for teachers by the National Education Association in 1951, proclaimed, and I quote, it is important that people who are to live and work together shall have a common mind, a like heritage of purpose, religious ideals, love of country, beauty, and wisdom to guide and inspire them, close quote. The message of this NEA Civics Handbook was fortified by selections suitable for memorization such as Old and New Testament passages, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, the Golden Rule, the Boy Scout Oath, and Patriotic Songs. My, how the public schools have changed and how the teachers' unions have changed since 1951. The turning point came in the 1960s with the great influence of the humanist John Dewey and his Columbia Teachers College acolytes who argued against objective truth, against authoritative notions of good and evil, against religion and tradition. And then Sidney Simon's 1970 book called Values Clarification, which sold nearly a million copies, was widely used to teach public school students to cast off their parents' values and make their own choices based on situation ethics. Then the public schools welcomed the Kinsey-trained sex sexperts to change the, the sexual morals of our society from favoring sex in marriage to sexual diversity. Concepts of right and wrong were banished, and so the children were taught about varieties of sex without any reference to what is moral and good. Since the 1950s, the public schools have rejected the Meyer-Pierce doctrine that parents have the fundamental right to control the upbringing of their children, and instead have adopted the view that the village, that is the government, should guide the child. While tolerating massive illiteracy, the public schools are now powerfully impacting our culture by inculcating the values of situation ethics, diversity, and the easy acceptance of sex outside of marriage. American history and literature courses now teach the doctrines of U.S. guilt and multiculturalism instead of the greatness of our heroes and our successes. Public schools have become fortresses in which school administrators exercise near-absolute power to guide the students' values, morals, attitudes, and hopes, while parents are kept outside the barricades. Federal courts confirm the monopoly power of the schools to affect our culture. The Ninth U.S. Circuit Court ruled last year that a public school can teach students whatever information is, wishes to provide, sexual or otherwise, and that parents' right to control the upbringing of their children does not extend beyond the threshold of the school door. After heavy criticism in Congress, the Ninth Circuit tried to soften the word threshold, but boldly reaffirmed the decision. In five circuits within the last two years, federal courts have handed down anti-parent, pro-public school decisions. Federal courts upheld the right of public schools to indoctrinate students in Muslim tradition and practices, to force students to attend a program advocating homosexual conduct that used minors in sexually suggestive skits, to force students to watch a one-hour pro-homosexual video, to censor any mention of intelligent design, to use classroom materials that parents consider pornographic, to force students to answer nosy questionnaires with suggestive questions about sex, drugs, and suicide, and to deny a divorced father's right to get his own son's school records. This is not only a culture issue, it is a free speech issue. The schools are censoring views that do not conform to the diversity-multiculturalism culture they are determined to teach. The courts upheld the public schools in prohibiting an anti-gay t-shirt, but ordered a school to permit an extremely offensive anti-Bush t-shirt. The free speech issue has now expanded beyond the schools as the gays try to get people fired who criticize the gay agenda. The courts have upheld the constitutional right of any school child to refuse to recite the Pledge of Allegiance, but neither school nor court offered any child or parent the right to opt out of any one of these programs that I listed. So to sum up, it's not a question of whether or if the government will or should define our culture. Government schools are every day powerfully defining the culture of the nation our children will live in by inculcating the values of diversity, multiculturalism, American guilt, situation ethics, and the easy acceptance of sex outside of marriage. There is no proof that the American people have democratically chosen this definition of our culture. It is being done with the power of government employees spending the people's money. Since there is no prospect that either the public schools or taxes will be abolished anytime soon, <laughs> our task is to stop government institutions from directing our culture in ways the American people do not want to go. Thank you.
6: Thank
0: you, Phyllis.
5: Thank you, Phyllis.
0: Our next speaker is William Eskridge. Professor Eskridge is uh, the John Garver uh, Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School. Uh, he has written a number of very important books. Uh, his specialty is in statutory interpretation, and he's going to talk to us about our subject today. Please join me in welcoming Bill X.re.
7: Well, here's an irony. Uh, I actually agree with the main points made by the previous speakers, so I'm not sure that I I don't I mean, uh, know. All of them. Yes, now you have two choices at this point. You can just sit down, uh, which is not an option open to a Yale law professor, (laughs) where gas is our middle name, or you can try to synthesize them. So let me suggest uh, a sort of odd synthesis of what you've just heard, particularly from the panelists on my far left. Uh, It does seem to me, and Ms. Shoffley, I completely agree with you on this, it does seem to me that there's a strong tendency uh, when, in our country, we have strong cultural and deep normative conflict for each side to see the government as a needed ally in advancing their normative agenda. Uh, We saw this in the apartheid versus civil rights movement. We've seen this in the wets versus dries on the use of alcohol. We've seen this on the pro-life versus the pro-choice view on abortion. We've seen this on gay rights uh, versus traditional family values. Uh, And this is not an irrational thought, uh, because the government, and I'll go beyond you, Mrs. Shoffley, the government is teacher, police officer, and opinion leader. There are lots of reasons. Exactly as Mrs. Shoffley says, the government is our teacher. Uh, We're not only educated, perhaps less so than before in the public schools, but the uh, government is a site of educational advertising campaigns that inundate us each day with information and norms. The government, moreover, has, as a police officer, has a monopoly on legitimate coercion. The government can at least try, Dr. Murray, to force conformity uh, or provide incentives for conformity. And then the government sees itself often as an opinion leader. Symbolic politics is often about the value of government endorsement to carry normative weight or at least be a signal of higher status for the victors. So it seems to me that's, that's a deep truth that you all have identified. Uh, on the other hand, somewhat with Dr. Murray, uh, that direct government intervention into these deep normative conflicts, Uh, it seems to me, uh, Dr. Murray, no, it doesn't always work, or usually doesn't work, but it usually does not turn out at all as intended, and it's often counterproductive. The government uh, uh, produces effects that are not sought for even by the proponents. Take the anti-same-sex marriage initiatives that we've seen in recent years. As I understand it, the goal of these initiatives is either to strengthen man-woman marriage, and marriage generally in this country, or to bash or denigrate gays or homosexuals, or something of both. Those seem to be the main goals. Now, if those are the goals, uh, and these initiatives have been quite successful, uh, it seems to me that the anti-same-sex marriage movement has run into three types of problems, and I think you see this more broadly. The first is the problem of the distorted normative agenda. And that is political campaigns and investing all sorts of resources uh, to procure the government intervention that you want will often refocus attention and your own agenda away from your group's deeper goals. You see this in religion, for example. And so what we've seen in the traditional family values movement is that they have focused on stopping same-sex marriage, and they've done so successfully in many jurisdictions But that has meant less focus on the deeper threats to marriage, which include high divorce rates, deadbeat dads, domestic violence rates, etc., etc., that are genuine problems for marriages of all sorts. Second is a problem of compromise. And that is when you get involved in the government and there's deep normative conflict, not consensus, but deep conflict, uh, then uh, you're probably going to get a compromise, at least in many jurisdictions. And these compromises are going to have unpredictable results. So, for example, one effect of the anti-same-sex marriage movement in the last 30 years has been the generation of compromises with moderates that create new governmental forms for recognition of horizontal relationships, such things as domestic partnerships, which you see in California and dozens of American cities. You see civil unions. That's a new institution in Vermont, Connecticut, and probably New Jersey next year. You see reciprocal beneficiary institutions in Hawaii and Vermont. And sometimes, as in France and Vermont and many of the domestic partnership ordinances, straight couples want to enter these institutions as well that are created primarily for gay couples. And what you end up doing institutionally, which is not what you intended, is by stopping gay marriage you create institutions which for straight people constitute competitors to marriage. And then there's the problem of hyper-focus. And that is government attention to an issue creates hyper-focused discourse that can itself create and intensify unexpected phenomena. So for example, anti-gay campaigns or anti-same-sex marriage campaigns uh, can create, they can create homophobia, but they can also create homosexuality not just as a coherent identity and a famous identity, maybe a fabulous identity, and maybe a sexy identity. Just ask Romeo and Juliet. uh, As William Shakespeare recognized, state and parental disapproval will not dissuade Romeo from loving Juliet, or Mercutio, as the case may be, and indeed, (laughs) might even make Juliet or Mercutio, as the case may be, even sexier. And so the anti-same-sex marriage initiatives might get young people thinking about and even romanticizing uh, in unpredictable directions about the way they want to form their relationships. Now the elements that I've suggested the hyper focus problem, the compromise problem, and the misplaced agenda problem, are not unique to same sex marriage. Clarence Thomas makes these very same arguments about the counterproductiveness of affirmative action. As Clarence Thomas argues, the affirmative action, he says, has distorted the civil rights agenda away from things they should be focusing on has created compromises that hold back African Americans and don't advance their lives and creates a hyper focus on race as a totalizing identity and perhaps even contributing to prejudice. Okay? So this is not a liberal versus conservative thing, it seems to me this is a true thing. So query. I come back with uh, uh, not Kenzie Perbs, just query. I come back to Mrs. Shoffley. Uh, is therefore the government unimportant in transforming culture? And I think she's right, it's very important but the government is most powerful in transforming culture most when it's indirect. And I'll give you a couple of examples and then the Attorney General will make me stop. (laughs) I think the best example is war. You basically got to have a government to fight a war and war has produced I think deeper uh, cultural transformations in our society including transformations that people fight for. So for example World War II transformed mainstream American values toward people of color toward the roles of women, and even ultimately toward homosexuality. Uh, Government innovations as to technology and infrastructure also can have deeper effects on culture than when government is intending to affect culture. The railroad, to take uh, my former clients when I was in private practice. Railroads in the 19th century contributed to a national economy and a national culture. It was not necessarily the intent, but that was the effect as well as to new economic tensions that fueled unionization, farm co-ops, popular political consciousness, and so on and so forth. What about going back to gays and lesbians? Uh, In my opinion, the anti-same-sex marriage movements are not going to deeply affect the American family in a good way, nor gays and lesbians necessarily in a bad way. For all of the DOMAs and the anti-same-sex marriage initiatives, it seems to me these will have less effects on same-sex marriage than two other government-sponsored innovations. One is the Internet. Remember Al Gore uh, helped invent that. Uh, uh, Al Gore and the military helped us invent the Internet. And the Internet has made sexual information, as well as misinformation, widely available in ways we never would have (coughs) thought before, as well as making matches easier for gays, lesbians, bisexuals, heterosexuals, etc., Uh, And then government-sponsored research has in some way contributed to the wide availability of artificial insemination technologies. And these medical technologies, in which the government probably doesn't play the primary role, have enabled a phenomenon that the law has maybe had much less to do with, at least affirmatively, and that is the creation. Uh, Anthony uh, speaks about same-sex marriages. Uh, Let me close with same-sex families. Uh, that uh, according to the 2000 census, there were 600,000 same-sex couples in the United States, probably an undercount. It's gone up by at least 100,000 since then. Uh, And the census found that a third of those uh, female couples were raising children within the relationship. A fifth of the male couples were raising children within the relationship, many of them through artificial insemination and other techniques. Uh, This is transforming American culture. It's not an agenda. It is a social phenomenon that we now are grappling with. The government plays a role, but not the role that you would have expected when you elected Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, and various Bushes. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Bill. Uh, Winding up the uh, six uh, initial uh, talks here, is Professor Hadley Arkes. Uh Hadley is, uh, is a, the Edward Nay Professor of Jurisprudence and in American Institutions at Amherst College. Uh, I've known him since the days when he was a Salvatore Fellow. He's one of the uh, very profound writers on a variety of subjects, including the one that we're dealing with today. Uh, please welcome Hanley Arkis.
8: Bill Eskridge reminds me of um, Mark Twain's line from and Wilson's calendar that Adam ate the apple, not because he wanted the apple, because it was forbidden. And the great mistake was not forbidding the serpent, then he would have eaten the serpent.
3: Suisse. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
8: now, I, I find myself in a position where I'm probably one of seven people here who think Lochner was rightly decided. And I'm... Uh, <laughs> and I have to play the role of the moralist here and it's, it was that line from Tom Stopper that the moralist is bound to sound like a crank haranguing the bus queue with the demented certitude of one possessed of privileged information <laughs> uh, but I did I said something awkward um, I've prepared something to address the subject we're given and uh, so I may have to use an old device of mine and compress this talk hebraically by omitting the vowels <laughs> I'm time for seven minutes, Ed. Um, I understood that the problem here at the core was the question of whether government should shape the culture. And it's curious as to how people affect to be unaware of the classic understanding of the connection between the logic of morals and the logic of law, and then find themselves persistently backing into the same logic and indeed relying on it at every turn. Of course, the government shapes the culture. It shapes our moral understanding because that was built into the very nature of lo- and logic of law. When we legislate, we override claims of personal choice and private freedom, replace them with a uniform rule and a public obligation, and that move is coherent only as we appeal to some principle that defines what is just or unjust, more generally or universally. So forgive me for being clinical, but when we move to the level of a moral judgment, we move away from statements of merely personal preference or private taste. We begin to speak about the things that are right or wrong or unjust for others as well as ourselves. And so if we come to the judgment that it's wrong to own humans as slaves, we mean it would be wrong for everyone, for anyone. And if we come to the judgment that it's wrong for parents to torture their infants, the logical response is not to say, ah, therefore let's give a a tax incentive to induce them to stop. (laughs) The logical response is with with the voice of a command, the command that forbids that torture to whom? To anyone, to everyone. We forbid it with the force of law. That's not to say that that it's wise to reach with the law everything that is wrong, because we may hold back in prudence. But the law finds its ground of coherence and its ground of justification only when the moral ground and principle has been established. So when we restrict the freedom of people, we're obliged to say more than most of us don't like it. That's not good enough. And to get clear on the moral standards that must govern our judgment is not to legislate more; it is to legislate less. We raise the bar. That's why I, too, think we have too much law. And so when the question was raised in the past, how does the law teach? How does it go engaged in moral teaching? The answer was, it teaches through the laws. When we legislate against racial discrimination in private inns and restaurants, we remove that discrimination from the domain of private taste and treat it as a matter of moral consequence. Between 1963 and 1966, opinion in the South came to be parallel with opinion in the North, with majorities in both sections, Holding to the wrongness of racial discrimination, we may ask, did the culture of the South change so strikingly in three years? Did it have something to do with new moral lessons being taught at the top of the state and taught dramatically with the laws? In recent years, the most dramatic attempts to alter the culture, to shape anew the moral understanding, has come through the efforts to impose, through the courts, a right to abortion and the notion of gay rights, including same-sex marriage. And clearly, those issues stand at the core of what we call today the culture wars. In these cases, the project was to instruct the public gradually, persistently, that the things that elicited a public recoil should now be tolerated, then accepted, then approved, then regarded as rightful, desirable, as things to be promoted through the use of the laws. Now, in Massachusetts, we have seen the move to teach even more emphatically in the schools, to proclaim in the land the new ethic contained in the orders of the court on same-sex marriage. And as some administrators have declared, it is now, after all, the law. And they are teaching the pupils to understand the moral lessons that the law is trying to impart. Surely the most risable thing these days is to hear both proponents of same-sex marriage, and even libertarians, profess to be appalled at the notion of using the law to reshape the culture, the moral understanding of the public. No one can rightly deny that the the law imparts a sense of what is rightful and wrongful. The libertarians would have us recede precisely because they wish to recede from moral judgment on certain things, perhaps racial discrimination or sexual matters. But even the libertarians are not willing to overthrow the laws on marriage. They insist that the laws require two parties competent to contract, not the marriage of children or the marriage across species that some people have recently sought. Maybe Mr. Philip Buble in Maine wanting to marry his 37-pound dog lady. Yet even if our libertarian friends are right, and the libertarians are right 80% of the time, uh, you know, what was Holmes' line about Rufus Beckham? He said his major premise was, God damn it. And and as the social scientists say, it explains a large portion of the variance. He got it right most of the time. Uh, Even the libertarians do wish to instruct people in the moral rightness of a government that restrains itself and respects personal freedom. The point here is that nothing here can be settled by invoking some empty slogan that the law should not try to shape morality. The law has no business speaking in the first place unless it's pronouncing on something of moral consequence. If we think it's seriously wrong for a parent to withhold medical care from a child, we're moved to have the law register a concern and intervene. There used to be signs saying, no Irish need apply, white tenants only. They did not necessarily produce material harms. They denigrated. They produced at times certain emotional wounding. Yet the law came down to bar those kinds of signs, even when the law had not barred the freedom to engage in the discrimination in hiring or renting. Stephen Douglas famously insisted that the government should not pronounce under vexing moral questions like slavery, people should be left to their personal choice, but when it was a matter of polygamy now in Utah, well then he was willing to send in the troops, because now this was serious stuff. (laughs) And thus it is. If people take seriously a right to abortion, they want to see it protected and promoted in the law. They're not content with a federalist solution, for they're not content with the notion that people may be deprived of a right because they happen to live in South Dakota rather than New York. And the party that professes such a deep concern about privacy has led the charge over the years in withholding the shelter of privacy for private business, private clubs, respecting their own private criteria. In the case of gay rights, there's been an adamant opposition even to tolerating the right of people in their private enclaves, in their small businesses or rental of homes to honor their own moral convictions or the, on the rightness or wrongness of homosexuality. And surely this would seem to be the place <coughs> where the claims of private judgment could have been readily tolerated by people who've made privacy their anchoring slogan. And this doesn't even get us to the clamor for new measures on hate speech to censure and punish even priests who might state the traditional teachings on homosexuality. As Lincoln said, if slavery were right, all words against it would be wrong and could rightly be swept aside and I could grant your request to censor the federal males to screen out the abolitionist literature. And so we could grant this point. If the people professing this, professing this new ethic on same-sex marriage happen to be right, well, the course they've taken is quite warranted. But that is the substantive question. And that is the question in which everything must finally hinge, not some cliché about the law not shaping the culture. And so, like that character in Molière. He discovers that he's been speaking prose all his life, some of our friends wringing their hands over the law shaping morality find that they've been doing precisely that at every turn.
1: You held up the... Uh,
0: I think you will all agree with me that our speakers have done an excellent job of posing the question and uh, of uh, taking various aspects of it. And I think the thing that almost everyone has spoken about in one way or another is that, uh, indeed, a government can and does influence (laughs) culture, and to varying degrees, each of them has agreed that that's the bad thing to do. Now, the question I would pose to the panel here... (laughs) is faced with what we have today, uh, is it possible to stop government from influencing culture or at least to slow it down? Walter? I think it's um, probably not possible and perhaps not
1: desirable, and the question ought to make us uh, reflect on the one thing you asked, Ed, that we didn't discuss, and that is whether the framers would have had a different vision in 17. 87 to 1791 about the role of government. And, well,
0: feel free to answer it. And
1: that is, I, I think, none of us address that at all. And since this is the, a, you are the godfather of originalism, uh, we, we ought to address that. And it, it strikes me that we have to find ways to accommodate the framers' vision of private choice and private autonomy Given the inevitability, one may resist it, the inevitability of a much more socialized world. And one example of that is in the area of religion. The four justices, uh, Stephen, Suda, Ginsburg, and Breyer, who have often dissented in cases that seem to me extraordinarily easy the other way, have done so because they say government should not spend one penny for religion. And there are quotes to that effect from the founding period. But that was at a period when it was assumed that the government didn't engage in widespread social activities. The only way you would be funding religion is by having salaries for the the Anglican church ministers, which they knew was wrong. They just didn't conceive at the time they were saying no penny for religion, that there would be broad-based government spending programs of which religion would be one of the choices someone could make. They didn't see government funding magazines and newspapers at the state university, and therefore the idea that they uh, would would not exclude religious publications, which was the issue in Rosenberg, should have seemed easy. So I think we have to accommodate to the fact that we have to find ways to allow private choice to to work. And just it 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 does remind me finally of what Adams answered, John Adams answered Abigail truly extraordinary about uh, the role of government. She said, why do you intelligent men spend and waste so much of your time on government and politics? And his response is, my dear, we study government and politics so that our sons can study economics and finance and science. And so that our grandsons and granddaughters to study art and literature and music.
0: <laughs> who, else, who else would like to tackle the question? Charles? Yeah,
5: I, I just wish I had been able to line up Mr. Dellinger in those years I spent trying to abolish the National Endowment for the
0: Arts. <laughs> uh, Ph- Phyllis, let me just say, it's never too late. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I'd I'd like to pick up on something that Hadley said, because um, he said you've got to tell people that you're doing this for some other reason other than a whole bunch of us think it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. Because the the premise that the law absolutely embodies a moral statement uh, is, is true. And I guess what the American founding said was it's a fairly limited number of things. That the law is competent to to speak to, or that we should use the law to speak to, and and what I refer to as law inflation, I think, is that if you keep using the law, with and then it no longer has that moral weight. It it is saying do this, do that, and do the other thing, and a whole lot of people say to it, but that just simply has no moral consequence. I think that's when you really have a problem that can spill over into. Very deep perceptions of what the rule
7: of law and respect for the rule of law means. Well. General, if I could um, talk about original expectations, I think there are two things that should be said about that in the spirit of what Walter has raised. Uh, one is that th- there's some excellent historiography about the way in which the revolution transformed us as a culture. Uh, Gordon Wood is the most noted author in the history side and Bill Nelson is the most noted author on the law side. Uh, And one of Nelson's books deals with the transformation of attitudes in Massachusetts, which was actually one of the most regulatory states in the 17th and 18th centuries and then much less so after the revolution and then it's whatever it is today. (laughs) Uh, And part of Nelson's argument is that the Constitution is a libertarian document not by accident, but as a result of a a generational transformation. This didn't come overnight, a generational transformation in American attitudes that helped give birth to the nation. It's a book worth reading and thinking about, something more concrete. And that is, in my opinion, the framers gave us a roadmap for dealing with culture war issues in the government. It's very much in the spirit of what you're saying, Walter, with Justice O'Connor. And that is the religion clauses of the First Amendment. The way I would read the Religion Clause of the First Amendment, it sounds like Justice O'Connor, is is, this was the big identity issue of the 18th century. This was a, uh, the nation was very much divided. People felt very strongly about these issues. It was not only a matter of life and death, it was a matter of heaven and hell. Uh, And uh, the role of the religion clauses was not to develop hyper-technical rules, but instead it was, the Free Exercise Clause says, the government's not going to mess with your own personal religious beliefs, And it's also not going to impose, in a formal and bureaucratic way, some kind of state religion with the details to be worked out. And I think that's actually a a great model for constitutional law today. Uh, uh, Mr. Attorney General, we we talked about is it possible to limit government in this morning's panel, and the panel concluded no. (laughs) But uh, maybe something that could be done incrementally is bring back Justice O'Connor, or at least the O'Connor jurisprudence, Mm -hmm. And broaden it to other areas. Mm -hmm. That the role of government uh, should not be to settle culture wars one way or the other, either entirely the pro-gay way or entirely the pro-traditional family values way, but instead to create a culture where groups that have great antipathy to one another can live and work together productively. And it does seem to me on the gay marriage issue, which uh, several of us have talked about, it means neither the marriage protection amendment, settling the issue at the federal level, nor Supreme Court recognition of same-sex marriage, also settling the issue at the uh, federal level. Instead, what it means is state-by-state discussion. And I've actually just written a book arguing the state-by-state discussion should primarily be at the legislative level, which is exactly what they did in Scandinavia, which is the first modern jurisdiction set of jurisdictions to recognize same-sex unions. The law could raise certain kinds of issues,
8: that come into conflict with the deep principles of the fundamental law. And then in the 70s, we found judges assigning custody of children in mixed racial marriages to suit the color. And we came to the recognition that that kind of thing in domestic family law was incompatible with the deep principles of the Constitution. In the Federalist Number 33, Alexander Hamilton said, there are two things that would never could come within the reach of the federal government. One, inheritance. <laughs> and land taxes Mm -hmm. we've now come to learn better you can't do this by marking off a list of things because there's nothing you can name so prosaic that it can never raise constitutional the only principle of regulation is that we withhold ourselves to make sure that we're we're requiring only things that can really pass a stringent moral test.
0: Well, <clears throat> Phyllis.
5: Oh, well, I would like to uh, direct the uh, discourse to uh, Mr. Murray, who uh, seems to be concerned that some of our attempts to protect or, su- or support traditional marriage are not going to have the effect we want. But he has uh, written eloquently in prior times about how government action really destroyed the traditional family in the welfare class by the financial incentives. And we're back to the spending of federal money, and every dollar affects our culture in some way. And it's now common wisdom, which I think you referred to Uh, Initially, or maybe we're the first one to discover that when you offer financial incentives uh, to a woman to have a baby without a man in the house, you promote fatherless children and you promote illegitimacy. And uh, these financial incentives, uh, even though they have so-called welfare reform, are still in the law uh, with the uh, financial incentives to the states uh, to promote fatherless children, uh, to promote divorce uh, because it means more money in the hands of the states who get uh, money to build their bureaucracy once they label non-custodial fathers and, uh, they, and they get bonus money the more they create and, and I, I think it's very important that we direct our attention to how the spending of government money affects culture in ways that may or may not have been attended, but intended but have a tremendous effect
0: Charles?
2: Yeah, yeah there's an asymmetry uh, that, uh, that government activities can degrade the culture real easy. I mean, the, the, they, they've done it on a variety. I mean, your discussion of the, the National talent for the Arts was just you know, classic. And the same thing goes with attempts to uh, intervene in the family. My only point is, that the asymmetry is not limited to liberal solutions it also applies to conservative solutions that we just aren't smart enough uh, even apart from all the ways in which our our bright ideas get uh, messed up when they go through congress but apart from that we aren't smart enough to use the levers of government to strengthen something like the family that the paradox is why is it that you end up with a culture in which the vast majority of children are born to committed, mature adults. It happens when having a child is a really big deal. And having a child is a really big deal when you're on the hook for raising that child, for paying for it, for doing everything, and there are no supports. That's that's the paradox. You get strong families when the action lies with families, and any attempt to help out... Backfires, And I would extend that to uh, communities and other institutions as well. I, yes, I, but I'm, the I'm money... Basically, I'm basically saying there is no way for the government to do good. But, boy, are there a lot of ways for it to do good. To do good.
5: Well, I agree they're incompetent, but... Uh. <laughs> But the amount of money they're spending to do good on marriage is just a fraction of the amount of money, taxpayer money, that has gone to do harm and has created fatherless children.
4: May I ask Phyllis a question? Phyllis, how would granting my partner and me the ability to marry deny you your rights or undercut your marriage? Just help me understand that question.
5: Uh, well, I don't think that's that's the point. But I certainly was surprised to hear that uh, attempts to support uh, who was it who, who said, uh, Mr. Estridge, that uh, uh, the, the hyper-focused discourse on um, on this subject uh, is. Uh, uh, really um, creating more homosexuality. I thought that was a really surprising statement. And, and but you no, have a problem with that,
4: Phyllis? <laughs>
5: Just, you should be clear. No, I don't think it's creating more homosexuality, no.
4: But if it were, would you be troubled by that?
5: Oh, well, what I believe we, in free speech. We should. Okay. Well, we should speak I believe, freely. I believe in free speech. Yes, but you ask the question about marriage. It, it isn't that uh, the same-sex marriage uh, uh, decisions uh, would hurt my marriage. Is that as a society uh, we have recognized? that the infant is the most helpless creature on earth. And the matter of marriage is designed for the purpose of creating the obligation on the people who create that child uh, for its care and upbringing. And that is a valid reason, and that is why upholding that uh, marriage is a man and a woman is good for our society. And, and
4: so having a child in a family with two mothers where they're being raised with both mothers. It's better for the child to be left out in the wind with no legal protections and with that family not recognized. That child will grow up stronger, healthier, better because that family unit is treated as a second-class citizen in America.
5: Uh, I think the evidence is pretty clear that children need both a mother and a father.
4: Th- that's they, not my uh, situation.
5: They offer uh, different uh, elements in the, in the care of the child. And just because some married couples uh, do not have children for one reason or another uh, has, has nothing to do with the societal question that the purpose of marriage is to provide for the care and upbringing of the, of the child who is the result of that sexual union.
0: I think we'll move back to the subject of government uh, for a moment. <laughs> 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 I, I think we are talking about the government. And uh, I'd like to pick up on, uh, on, on something that was said by, uh, by Bill when he talked about this particular issue of being uh, uh, appropriate, more appropriate at a state-by-state basis, because I think it answers the question that uh, Walter brought up, and that is that the difference from what the founders had in mind is essentially a structural one. Mm -hmm. The founders had in mind that the central government, the federal government, the government created by the Constitution, as Hamilton said, would have few and specified functions. Mm-hmm. And Hamilton not only said that land taxes and, uh, and what was the other thing, an inheritance would not be part of the federal government, but he also said education and health and road building and criminal law and uh, two or three other things uh, would be reserved to the states. And the th- concept of, of the founders was twofold. Number one, that the states were closer to the people, so that those matters that pertain to the daily lives of people should be left to the states. And they also said that the states could then handle it pretty much as the people who, uh, through their legislators, determined, and that if a state made a mistake, it didn't really matter to the whole nation and it didn't encompass the whole nation. And, in fact, we've had later... uh, 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 discourse on this in which the states have been called laboratories of democracy so that they could try different ways and also I think the <laughs> founders had in mind that if people didn't like what was going on in one state they could move to another state. So to me the basic problem was the erosion of this concept of divided power between the national government and the states. You know,
1: what i okay, uh, tell you anyways Who is missing from this conversation that I wish were alive uh, and could participate. I think it would be bracing for all of us. And that's Barry Goldwater, because, and and for those of you who haven't seen it, there's a truly extraordinary documentary of the life of Barry Goldwater that debuted at Duke uh, last spring, uh, early summer, about the time Justice O'Connor stepped down. And what was striking about it was her interviews about how she came into politics as a Goldwater Republican and, and how these values that you've discussed meant so much to her and then his behind the scenes role in promoting her nomination and her confirmation and what is striking is that I think we think of a lot of us perhaps saying think of Barry Goldwater as sort of emblematic of uh, 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 having used the word extremism himself extreme conservatism and Sandra O'Connor as the epitome of mainstream in America. right? The dictionary encyclopedia would have mainstream modern, a picture of Sandra O'Connor. And actually, when you hear them both talk, you realize that there's not a single thing that she has done on the court, I think, that he would have disapproved of. That, in fact, we have these different views of them, but they were, they were very, very, very close. It's just that property rights were more salient in the government. And it, a lot of it is that the world has come to Barry Goldwater. That is, what was seen as extremist economics became the economics of the world with the collapse of communism. That free market no longer seemed extreme. And where he was what we would call liberal on things like uh, gay rights and and abortion rights uh, were less salient in his work or his time in 1964 than in the work of the court. But they were very, very, very close. And Barry Goldwater was consistent in his view about limited government and was consistent across the board to a remarkable degree that comes that comes forth.
0: With that, I think it's an appropriate time to turn to the audience, and if you uh, wish to ask a question, please uh, line up. We, let me only say this. Uh, as was expressed earlier today, uh, let's uh, ask questions not with a question mark only at the end but throughout the statement. And... And uh, then uh, as short and succinct as possible so we can get all of these people in during the time we have allotted, we'll start with you.
5: My question is about the uh, growth in the uh, non-African American illegitimacy rate and the impact of that on the efforts to uh, strengthen the family. What is the take of the panel on the fact that notwithstanding that we have a tremendous number of initiatives to support the family, by choice, more and more couples seem to be disregarding the formal structures which dominate the concept of marriage legally, if not culturally.
0: Charles?
2: uh, At least I can refer to some salient numbers on that. Uh, Just so that uh, those of you who do not know, the white non-Hispanic Uh, illegitimacy ratio, that's the percentage of children born out of wedlock, is now uh, about 24, 25%, which is coincidentally the same number that led uh, Pat Moynihan back in the early 1960s to talk about the breakdown of the black family. Uh, It is, above all, a very concentrated phenomenon, socioeconomically, within race. So that if you take uh, the uh, proportion of children born out of wedlock who in uh, Scarsdale, that's probably at World War II levels. If you take the proportion of children born out of level in uh, white homes below the poverty line, it is at 40, 50, 60 percent, depending on the community. Now, why should it be that you have a phenomenon concentrated among the poorest people? And it's not taken it's, – it's risen much uh, more slowly among affluent ones. It seems to me that, as Phyllis suggests, you've got a real – in some ways, you can have a child now a lot easier. It's just not that big a deal. And uh, dad isn't going to come after uh, the uh, guy with the shotgun, uh, p- first because there may not be a dad there, but also it's not the case that what has been done is a, is a calamity. So That's partially bad. from the loss of stigma. But the loss of stigma itself in a profound cultural shift comes about when the penalties for having a child without a husband have dropped. And they have dropped because of government intervention.
5: Well, the answer to your question is government money. We are subsidizing the illegitimacy, and that is government impacting on our culture in a powerful way that has been a disaster.
4: I I must say, though, I find it it a little bit disconcerting. I I have to be the canary in the coal mine even if I – even if I – drop over from lack of oxygen. Uh, I I find it absolutely ironic in an audience or in a a panel where we're talking about strengthening families and the importance of strengthening a family and yet the currents of uh, of at least the reactions or interactions or the comments of my fellow panelists is to deny rights and protections to families that exist. So Phyllis, with all due respect, I find it... Absolutely ironic to hear you talk about strengthening American families, and yet you won't say that you'll grant me and my family the rights and protections that we deserve. I find that you just have to explain that to me. I don't understand it.
7: Bill, let let me make a a somewhat different point, and then I have a sociological point. The the somewhat different point, Anthony, is that Phyllis, I I suggest you, Mr. Shoffley, and a lot of others, believe that. Among the reasons the family is in decline is that the government sanctions other relationships like cohabitation and it sanctions no-fault divorce in addition to the spending programs. That's certainly uh, a position that makes some degree of sense. Thank now, you. as a political matter, those proposals to bring back fault and divorce and to make cohabitation illegal are going nowhere. And one of the reasons they're going nowhere, well, one of the reasons is they're just unpopular, but the other reason they're going nowhere is that people think they can save marriage by denying gay people marriage licenses. So you vote for that and you've done something for marriage. This is, by the way, again, Clarence Thomas's criticism of Brown. Okay, so we strike down apartheid, we think we've done something for black school children. Thomas says, you've done nothing for black school children. And I would suggest you've really done nothing for marriage when you vote that way. Now, here's the sociological point that I think has got to be kept in mind. And that is that there are large social changes which in some cases swallow up government, and in other cases do push government action in unpredictable directions. And the big social change, I suppose, in the last 150 years is urbanization. And in an urbanized society, if you want traditional marriage, and by the way, marriage has been completely different in every generation of American history. There is no such thing as traditional marriage. But if you want the oldest-fashioned view of marriage, we should all be on farms. When you, when you need the husband and the wife and a boatload of children
6: <laughs> who can
7: be put to work for economic purposes, okay? Now, and under those circumstances, the family is going to be stronger. The husband and wife are going to tend to stay together. They're going to have a boatload of children, uh, and the children are going to be very bonded to the uh, husband and wife. We have lost that. We are now mainly in urban society where women have opportunities outside the home number of economists and sociologists have said the main variable is what options economically do women have outside the home? And that drives a lot of social change, including the uh, less stability of marriage.
5: Well, that's just the government uh, laws uh, influencing our culture. But you have set up a straw man. I didn't say anything about locking up cohabiting couples. I just said stop subsidizing them.
6: Roger. Roger. Let's go on
0: to another question.
6: Of course, no one's raised the issue, what's the government doing in the marriage business to begin with, rather than leaving it to priests, rabbis, and justices Mm -hmm. of the Mm (laughs) peace. In any event... um, The growth of government and the ensuing uh, value, public value clashes that follow are not limited to just these issues we've been talking here. When you have public parks, for example, it's a debate as to whether it's going to be backpackers or recreational vehicles. When you have zoning, you have constant battles over there, whether you're going to have McMansions or teardowns and so on and so forth. And so it seems to me that uh, at the end of the day, the the real question is, are we – Really libertarian, or is the country moving increasingly in the direction of people wanting to run other people's lives, NPR style? All things considered.
0: Mm. (laughs) There was a question mark at the end, but it it was. But would anyone care to comment? But it was somewhat.
7: (laughs) Roger, there's an easy answer to that. It's like the certs debate, which roiled us in the 1980s. Is it a breath mint? Is it a candy mint? Well, it was resolved. It, it's, it's both. And the fact of the matter is most Americans are both. They're both libertarian as to the things that they care about their own freedom for. And they're nosy about things that they see as a public threat, which tends to overlap strongly with things they don't like. Is that is fair? That, is that fair? <laughs> But uh, I, think, I
4: think the issue often plays out in some of the most difficult set of facts. I'll give you one example. You've heard me champion the rights of gay couples to marry. And I still have not gotten an answer, and I hope to get one, about why it's so difficult to grant individuals the right to marry who love one another and are committed to each other. And the denial of those rights creates stigma and discrimination, right? So, but, but let me give you the example of how my organization... Uh, applies this in a more neutral way. Uh, You know about Fred Phelps and uh, the individual, the minister who goes around saying that the reason why men and women in uniform are dying in the war in Iraq is because America has granted rights to gays and lesbians and he shows up with his members of his congregation at military funerals. And liberals have been very queasy about taking the right stance on that one. My organization has taken two cases arguing that Mr. Phelps no matter how much I despise the man and stands for everything I don't stand for, has a right to free speech and protest even at those military funerals. And, and one of the things that I think is important to underscore is that America, although libertarian, gets queasy when you deal with a set of facts and circumstances when you want to apply these rules neutrally. And that's precisely what I'm saying in the context of marriage. If you believe in strong families, apply the rules neutrally. Allow everyone to marry.
0: Well, uh, let me yeah. just uh, comment, if I may. Uh, I think what Mr. Phelps needs to learn is that part of the First Amendment is the time, place, and manner requirements, <laughs> and that's why I think that he's out of place.
1: And we've well, we argued that
4: Attorney General Mason will have won uh, thus far on those issues.
8: Okay. Just to let there is a willingness to continue that conversation if the moment arises, uh, but, because after all. Um, when Jerry Nadler says, Everybody raises hand here whose whose marriage is threatened, you know, when we say everybody raises hand whose marriage is threatened by the denial of incestuous marriages, that we that we that we barred this forty-two-year-old woman in Stafford, Virginia from living with her nineteen year old son. When we did the Defense of Marriage Act, Andy Sullivan was there saying, No, this is not polygamy. We will we will not permit polygamy. We insist on two. I said, well, begetting has nothing to do with it. What do you say to the people who say, our love is not confined to a coupling. It's woven together into a larger ensemble. But Andrew was not ready to go to the polygamous or the polyamorous. And so the question arises for you. Know, it, it's not whether that's threatening to you. The question is, when you, move, when you remove the barriers that open you now to polygamy, to polyamory, and a variety of other things, the question for you is, will marriage itself lose its coherence? as something to be wished and, to, and, and desired. And that's that's now the larger question that's in, that's involved here, I think. Um, so I'll reserve, I'll reserve, but I i not want to add that after all, the first Republican platform denounced those twin relics of barbarism, slavery and polygamy. And it was understood that the question of marriage was at the very matrix of the laws. It's been part of the laws since we've had laws. I just had chance to look at uh, Justice Story's 1834 work on the conflict of the laws where he says the question of marriage is the most pervasive question in the civil system. It's not an accident that it has taken this prominence, but more later. That's right. right.
5: (laughs) (laughs) Nor can you marry a child, nor can you marry your sibling. Society has a right to make those rules,
0: even though you love them. The next question, please.
5: Some places you can, but we're not there. Uh, I want to mention the fact
8: that natural law ought to have something to do with this. When the founding fathers, as you called them, framed the laws of this country, they were based off the Bible. Now, those of you who believe it are set in churches where they have it. That already knocks out the homosexual marriage. God prepared Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. You are loved, sir, but you don't have no special concession to your sin. The wages of sin is death. Everybody who sins be homosexual, adulterer, liar, thief, whatever, is going to go to hell. Ways of sin or death, that's you. And if you want to do that
7: kind of thing, you do I, it.
4: And, and I do. And the, I,
7: the meaning of love, wait a minute, you, talk, you say
0: you have love. Well, would I, you I die for your partner? I do for your, I you do for as your partner? as I can. Would at, you at die the, for at, your partner? At, at the risk at the risk of uh, uh, provoking <laughs> may, uh, some, some sort of anarchy here, uh, <laughs> Let me suggest that we go on to the next question. But I want to thank you at least for an honest
4: answer. It is among the first I've heard in the room this afternoon. Thank you.
3: All right. I believe my question is on a topic even more important than marriage. The very brief predicate is a recent bit of cultural opinion research from France, which has showed that a large majority of the men in France would not serve the armed forces to defend that country unless the homeland was being directly attacked. And a very good proportion of the men in France said they would not act to defend France even if the homeland were being attacked. that's, that's
8: (laughs) That's been the case for a long time.
3: It seems to me... That's the number one, yes, if anything can can surprise us about France, the number one issue about government defining the culture is to avoid that outcome. And I believe the only way I know that one can go about doing that is with the kind of aggressive pro-patriotic indoctrination in the schools that we probably all experienced and that Mrs. Shafley was talking about, something your mentor understood very well, I think, Mr. Meese. So would any of the, the, the left-leaners or unusual or complex thinkers on the panel <laughs> disagree with that or have any any thoughts about it? And for Mr. Arkies you know, it has to be done on a visceral level. It's not all working out the moral um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a
8: gastrointestinal event.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. I did think about answering that. I did think about addressing the question of patriotism because I wanted to raise, I, I thought about raising the question of why any of us or conservatives were comfortable with having children recite a government message in unison with which I think, a message with which I think Justices Scalia, Thomas, and Kennedy would not, Agree that is a renunciation of state sovereignty, and more John Paul Stevens' view of the um, of the of the constitutional structure, one nation indivisible. There's no mention of states. It's uh, meant to sort of impose the sort of northern view that state sovereignty was repudiated, <laughs> etc. Now, I did so. I I, I wondered about is the most striking example of government regulation of the culture the organization of children to say the Pledge of Allegiance. And then it occurred to me that it's not actually a good example because there is a justification that is quite different. That is, when government is promoting its own self-preservation, government may actually have a role there that is more defensible than weighing in, you know, between Norman Rockwell and Karen Finley. this This is what it's about. And so it could well be that that there is an answer as to why we are comfortable with that kind of 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 organized regimentation of uh, recitation, because it is about government uh, government it, itself, which would otherwise make, make us uncomfortable if there were any other view being being expressed.
8: Except for one thing, that look, Anthony recalled to the, the ACLU. I was called in years ago to state the other side during the argument over the Nazis and Skokie when Dave Hamlin said, we must be free to hear the Nazis because we must be free to choose the Nazis. That in this rendering, the Nazis who reject all men are created equal and governed by consent, stand on the same plane as everyone else. There is no ground on which to say their ends, their principles, are less legitimate than anything else on offer. And the first thing you have to do for making the case for defending the country is, do we think people, do they believe that this regime is morally preferable? in principle, more desirable than the alternatives. And unless that conviction is planted and, and renewed, I don't see how we're going to have the conviction to, that this is a, the defense of the country is one that justifies the risk of your life.
7: Here's, a, here's another perspective. Here's another perspective. It seems to me there are two more important things that determine a degree of national cohesion and patriotism. Uh, it seems to me, one, notwithstanding the French, remember that was a French hypothetical, uh, and one is is actual external threats. Uh, if the Germans or the Swiss, for that matter, went marching across France, uh, sacking French villages, I think that would produce an immediate change in French attitudes. That's number one. And then here's number two, and this is a, a question of cohesion, uh, and that is what generates community cohesion. Uh, and what studies have found in the military as well as larger social studies, what generates uh, cohesion, and I guess patriotism is one byproduct of that, is some kind of understanding that we're all working for some of the same common projects.
2: Mm-hmm.
7: And I think this is something. This is, again, one reason why I'm going to uh, uh, continue to assert war, railroads, and technology are great government projects that do contribute strongly to the building of culture often in unanticipated ways. And one of the ways that war and um, uh, uh, railroads contributed to public culture was that we engaged ourselves in a project we all pretty much agreed about uh, and we actually did it successfully. We uh, created the Transcontinental Railroad, we fought World War II, uh, etc. And I think that's actually the most important variable. Government can contribute to that but with all due respect, ma'am, the kind of discourse which um, uh, treats co-citizens who are in a cooperative mode uh, as, as vile human beings is not a productive contribution to public discourse. We can agree to disagree about deeply complicated issues uh, like marriage generally. But I think it is not productive to bring in sectarian readings of the Bible or, or other important documents, deep, wonderful documents. Then throw them out. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, just, I appeal not only to your sense of community, but also to the sense of community of everybody else in this room. That The thing to do about that is not to condemn it, but just to stand up and say, uh, can't we treat uh, the people who disagree with us uh, as co-citizens, and cannot we find projects on which we are working together? And let's focus our energies there.
9: Thank you.
0: Bill, uh, let me suggest, however, that that comedy and co-citizenship has to go both ways. Absolutely. Yes, sir.
9: Which is why all of us are here. Thank you for saying that, what you just said. Uh, my question is for uh, Mr. Romero. It's and Anthony. It's always Anthony. Anthony. <laughs> Um, first of all, thank you for coming into this lion's den, swords.
7: As, as
9: as a conservative at Harvard Law School, I can sympathize with. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is a question about something you mentioned uh, a while back, actually. Um, The liberties that are found in the Bill of Rights um, are hated by our nation's foreign enemies. And it is the United States military and not the ACLU that stands between them and our liberties. And I was wondering how it is somehow a defense of liberties to deny our soldiers the tools they need to find and detain and defeat those enemies.
4: We, and, I, and I really welcome the question, and it is exactly right to, to, to put that question to all of us. And I think it's especially in a moment now with the change in politics that gives us a renewed sense of having that, that sense of community and, and discussion that, that we need. And to be clear, I don't argue against most of the tools that our military needs uh, and does use. Uh, there are some fantastic members of the military who believe in pursuing the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and also upholding the best of American values. You have some of these JAG lawyers and some of these high members of the military, um, including individuals who have served in the Bush administration, who I just find remarkable individuals who stood up for all the right values. I think uh, Mr. Mora... Who served in the navy? It was a remarkable man. I think Colin Powell has raised many important points and has shown enormous vigor in defending these, uh, uh, the, the, both winning the war but doing so in a way that's best uh, comports with American values. Where I draw the line is, and I often get this question: saying, well, Anthony, are you just being uh, unrealistic? That the, our enemies are not going to apply the Geneva Conventions. Our enemies are not going to play by the rules of war when they behead. our our soldiers or they drag our soldiers behind a truck and I come back and say of course not I understand that the Al Qaeda is not going to play by the Geneva conventions but this isn't about Al Qaeda this is about us this is about us as Americans when we look in the mirror and we think about who we are are we a people dedicated to the writ of habeas corpus are we people dedicated to due process of law are we a people dedicated that you're innocent until proven guilty, and if you're going to be held in charge by the government, you're going to be given right to have access to a lawyer. Those are the basic rules of the road of our democracy. It's a whole Hamiltonian-Madisonian compromise. Three co-equal branches of government. And that's what, I, that's what I argue for when I argue that the members of the military and the government needs to be held accountable on those core American values that define us the best way as Americans and don't put us in harm's way.
8: But Anthony... I think I'm with you most of the way, but if there's any principle, there's no principle that runs deeper from the American Revolution to now. is that the security of the American people cannot be put in the hands of officers, whether in the British Parliament or in courts, that bear no direct responsibility to the lives of the people that are at stake. I mean, George Sutherland must have knew
4: but then that
8: it was wrong you know, to, to recognize the Soviet Union and, and carry over assets to of Russian nationals, he knew there was something wrong with it, but he knew as a judge that he could not as a judge revoke a decision to recognize the Soviet Union, a decision that goes hand in hand with military strategy. But, but then
4: have the Bush administration ought not to be fighting the ability to bring some of these very issues in good old American courts which they fight tooth and nail on. They say the courts lack jurisdiction. Read the Razul case, read the Hamdan case. The early pleadings in those cases are all about how our own court, our own American courts, don't have jurisdiction to hold American government officials accountable.
8: Anthony, I understand that, but Hobbes raised this critical point. Are you uncomfortable with the notion of sovereign power? If so, you're going to have to call forth some other power to limit it. And whatever power you call forth will be even more sovereign yet. And so if you're uncomfortable with the notion of a popularly elected president making those kinds of judgments, yes. then the solution is not to put them in the hands of an unelected judge. Well, you know, but
6: it's not. But that, that's a
1: I, that's a, I think, I
6: think, I
1: think, that is a false dichotomy. I think that's a radical concept. That, that's a false dichotomy, Yeah. because we well, want at least well, yeah, yeah.
6: <laughs>
1: that's your bag limit, okay? Uh, they I'm done is that. Listen, I am one of those people that believes that when American citizens are talking to Al Qaeda, we ought to know what they're saying. Okay, I believe that the president. I believe that we ought to be engaging in foreign electronic surveillance. The Foreign Electronic Surveillance Act permits and authorizes electronic surveillance. It wants to make sure that when you are wiretapping American citizens, that's what you're doing it for. Okay, when you have this machinery. And you want Article Three judges from whom there's never been a leak meeting in a secure facility just to keep a record of what you're doing. Now, that's what Congress passed. And the idea that, that what the court was doing in Hamden is saying, you've got to comply with an act of Congress unless you can show that it would inhibit the authority of the president. So that if it's after 9-11 and you're told we can't meet the 15-day requirement, do tap first and report we have too many taps we have to do as White House goes, said to this president go ahead but it says as soon as practicable and when it's practicable then you have to do it unless we have some reason why it would cripple the effort so the notion that a president who might have had authority to engage in as I think they do electronic surveillance before sure. Congress acts, sure doesn't have that authority and Congress acts within its legitimate authority and that is essentially what the court was, was saying you have to abide by the law. Imagine the worst person you can think of as president and ask whether you want that person to be able to do what whatever he or she could do without Congress having acted, he or she could do after Congress has acted. And I think the wisdom of, of Hamden emerges from that. But you know, now the other thing to be added
7: is that there is data on this. The FISA court, uh, in the period of FISA, on one occasion, is there a recorded instance where they turned down a request for a wiretap, and that was overturned on appeal in the Secret Appeals Court? Right. Okay. And that does so mean that mean, it's meaningless, meaningless that they no, ran all to, because you've
6: got a record. Well, I, yes, let, yes, me correct, let me finish this. Gentlemen, if
3: please. I can intervene. No, I'm wait, wait, wait,
7: wait. Wait. I can intervene. I've got the White House's response to this, so I've asked <laughs> the White House about this, oh. and their response is yes, but but because we have to go to court, that means we have to spend more time to get the wiretaps that we want to get, and I'm sure you can well, appreciate that, yeah, but that's what a lot of what it boils down to, are you willing to take the extra effort to abide by the statute that was passed by Congress and signed by the President and is of unquestioned constitutionality until very recently?
0: There's a lot more information on this subject, and I'm going to recommend to Leonard Leo that that be a topic at the next conference of of lawyers (laughs) of of the Federalist Society. Let's get on to the next question.
6: Well, Anthony, you may be in the lion's den, but not all the lions are against you. I can assure you. I I know. That's why I come. Last year, I picked up a (laughs) member. I had one new membership after my last (laughs) (laughs) Federalist Society. I'm
4: looking for two this year. Uh,
6: Set my sights high. As a preface to my question, Uh, I might recall that on January 20th, uh, 1995, when I was inaugurated uh, to the Washington State Supreme Court, it was the same day of the March for Life event, and I walked across the street and I gave a one-minute speech, which resulted in a -a two-and-a-half-year proceeding before our Judicial Conduct uh, Commission. Uh, The ACLU came to my defense, uh, invested over $90,000 in attorney fees, and uh, this resulted in my complete vindication. And uh, I will (laughs) never forget this, but my my question after the preface is, uh, we've heard many news reports of not only what goes on by low-level soldiers at Abu Ghraib, but as a matter of government policy uh, in Guantanamo, in the secret prisons, in interrogations of, of torture, of humiliation, of things that I'm sure these individuals... Uh, acting as private citizens would never perpetrate on their friends, neighbors, or their enemies, but yet they seem to be able to do this when they're in the government service with a clear conscience. Can you explain this for me?
4: Well, uh, it's, it is one of the most disconcerting parts of, of what's happened uh, in the aftermath of 9-11. And, and the idea that Abu Ghraib was somehow a couple of bad apples or some aberrant behavior is just belied by the facts. We have 100,000 pages of U.S. government documents that the ACLU has wrestled out of the hands of the government uh, under the Freedom of Information Act, Democracy's X-Ray, that's on our website. And you don't get 100,000 pages of U.S. government documents on torture based on a couple of bad apples. And now we just learned in the press reports this week, from also from our litigation, that are wrangling over what, whether or not the president signed an executive order uh, allowing the CIA to engage in even more uh, aggressive uh, torture techniques. Uh, for th- two and a half years, they've, they've refused to even uh, let us know whether or not that such an executive order exists. Now we know it's confirmed it exists. Now we're litigating the merits of getting that document out. To the public domain. And we argue that if our government is somehow rewriting the rules on torture and interrogation, if our president is signing off on what techniques are or not allowable by the CIA, uh, questions that don't uh, immediately impact national security, when asking for the specific uh, individuals or specific handbook of how you conduct the techniques, we want to know the basic parameters of it. And if those directives exist. And if those decisions have been made, then we believe the American public has a right to know. Uh, And that's precisely why we've been arguing these cases. We have two cases, one against a former Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld that's in federal court on December 8th. We have another case on behalf of Mr. Al-Masri, the German citizen who was abducted by the US military in Albania, uh, brought to Bagram, dropped, uh, uh, tortured for five months, brought back to Macedonia, uh, this is the, the call Celeb case that uh, the German Chancellor, Markle, has had a very difficult time explaining to her German citizens. It's the one that got Condoleezza Rice's knickers in a twist when she went to, to Germany. Uh, that case, we're just arguing about what are the basic facts, which are already out in the public domain. And we need to force our government to reconcile itself with what practices have been used and have not been used. And we, the people, believe we have a right to know.
0: We'll take these last two questions uh, if you would make them as short as possible. Yes. Uh, two quick
1: questions, one for Anthony and one for the panel. I'd like to hear from Anthony an honest answer, what he would say to a loving polygamous family who came before the audience and said they're you know, loving relationship, they're raising children, they're happy, they should have a right to marry. I'd like to know if Anthony would say we have to give them a right to marry.
4: I think often that question, I'll answer it. The, answer, the short answer is uh, ACLU policy is yes. Uh, my personal opinion, we can discuss privately. Uh, but I will tell you, I will tell you, no, no, I'm, I mean, it's more complex than that. But I will tell you,
0: I think, I think it's, it's
4: fought with difficulties around polygamy in terms of gender status and roles, um, uh, having multiple partners and wives. But the, the, the only reason why, and I gave you the real answer, I gave you the ACLU position, but the only reason why I resist off in those hypotheticals. is because that's a red herring, my friends. Oh no! It Polygamy. no! Polygamy has not been on the ballot.
5: It shows exactly where the ACLU is. That's right,
4: Phyllis. For individual freedoms, for dignity, for equality. And what I really resist... How
5: about the dignity and equality of the women?
4: How about the dignity and equality of, 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 of gay men and women who want to marry, Phyllis? No. American citizens and okay. loving as, relationships. As
0: the lion tamer in this Coliseum. (laughs) Let me me ask the
7: other panel now. I'd like to know where the panelists stand on hate speech
1: and this pressure now that we're seeing building. We saw it earlier today to silence people who criticize homosexuality. And there was a bill in Congress to make it hate speech to criticize homosexuality. I'd like all your opinions on that.
7: Uh, That's an easy one. I'm going to talk about Anthony's question, but the answer is it's unconstitutional. Most versions of uh, hate speech censorship are simply unconstitutional. So you're going to help us defeat the hate crimes bill, right? Well, I'd have to read it, but if if a bill makes public criticism of homosexuality illegal, that's unconstitutional. That's my position. It's always been my position. Let me say this about polygamy. I think you have to look at the facts about all these things. Okay, Denmark has had same-sex unions since 1989. That's right. One of the things that I would invite you to do is to look at data and evidence and experience. Okay, it's been mentioned by Dr. Murray that the Scandinavian countries had this high, you know, uh, out-of-wedlock birth rate, which is true. In Denmark, the out-of-wedlock birth rate has actually gone down since same-sex unions were recognized in 1989. The divorce rate has gone down, and the marriage rate has actually gone up. Is there a causal link? I don't know. Now, here's the other thing about Denmark. And that is that. There's no movement after 17 years, not a single movement to recognize polygamy, incest marriages, or Walter's ability to marry his cat. (laughs) As far as I know,
0: his cat is female, however.
7: Well, it doesn't matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter. As far as I know, the hotbed of polygamy in the Western world is in the state of Utah, which has plenty of laws against. Uh, uh, Same-sex sodomy is still illegal in Utah. It's not enforceable under warrants, but it's still a crime. Same-sex marriage is not recognized. Every time they have an opportunity, they legislate or vote against same-sex marriage. And yet, that is the place where polygamy is actually being sought for and apparently
5: practiced. No oh, figure. Mr. I want to ask you, since you're such an advocate of free speech, uh, didn't you have an incident at Yale where uh, uh, somebody who criticized homosexuality was uh, very much the torrent of criticism? Did you stand up and uh, back him? As, I certainly
7: did. You did? Yes, right? I was the host for this guy who he came to one of our conferences last spring. This is this guy who was at the Harvard Law School, the Tony Harvard Law School. We have some Harvard people here. Good for you all. Uh, and he, the Yale Art invited him to give a paper. They didn't know who he was. I didn't know who he was, frankly. He raised a big brouhaha. And I was asked to be his host. And I was the chair of the panel. About two-thirds of the students walked out, which I think was great, fine, that's their right. He delivered his paper, which I thought was great, fine, was his right. And we actually ended up with a, a very neat conference. That is always the place that I've been. I have never been in favor of censorship, to be quite honest.
5: Last question. I'm not looking for a libertarian answer to this question and you'll understand that in a second. But I would like a conservative statement especially in light of the death of the recent economist on why is there is there a conservative reason that the
3: extremely huge government cultural issue of criminalization of drugs is not a bigger federal case issue.
0: Anybody wanna tackle that? Well this this will also show you what the, the
6: conservative answer you're about to give?
0: Yeah so it's it's,
4: it's the
6: <laughs>
4: it's the true ACLU, as as Phyllis says. Uh, we believe in the legalization of drugs. Not because we think it's gonna good thing to have drugs in uh, rifling through families, but we think that the the criminalization approach on a public health issue is entirely wrong. And whether you like it or not, when you take a libertarian view, you apply those uh, rules and norms equally. Uh, and I, I think that it's clear that the war on drugs, uh, the, which is now uh, the son of that, is the war on terror, is a war without end. Uh, you see some of the same dynamics play out. So I'm glad to talk to you afterwards. I have a 6 o'clock plane. I'll be glad to stay here with you until I catch my plane. But you find this amorphous enemy that, that takes... Uh, gives root to greater law enforcement powers, and is, uh, and undercuts the system of checks and balances, uh, and that's why we think the war on drugs has been a big mistake.
0: Hadley has a short answer.
8: Oh no, this is uh, a short offered. comment. Well, it, it's I, I'm whatever I'm, it is, make I'm, it short. I'm, I'm, okay, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> cited sub sank same. <laughs> um, I'll just offer a word of consolation as we end the panel. I'll just take a rework a line from Woody Allen and say this: there's, there's no question that there's a moral world out there. The only question is,
7: how far is it from Midtown? How late does it stay open? <laughs> <laughs> and Bill, a final word? Yeah, here's the conservative answer, in my opinion, and that is it's a natural law answer. Uh, that a lot of Americans still think that the, the only connection with using drugs is with pleasure. Uh, has no connection with sociability or other productive human projects. Uh, even with alcohol, they can see some connection with sociability. And I think that's the deeper reason why uh, there's still not support in a broader way for the legalization of drugs. And having said that, I want to express my appreciation to the former Attorney General for doing a great job of hosting a very raucous panel. <laughs>
1: I uh, have, have the most important final word, a 52-yard a run, a 52-yard a 52-yard a
2: yard a run uh, Don't tell us we have a T-vote.
0: Oh, T-vote. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. T-vote. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> right. let, me just, uh, let me just say I'm two things. That. First all right. of all, uh, there is a reception following this, uh, as you all know. And secondly, please join me in thanking an extraordinary panel.
6: Thank you. <laughs> I said I do. I said a ruckus <laughs> from my